Hey, good to see your faces. We get to wrap up the book of Galatians. I'm already excited for the book of James in a couple of weeks. I'll let you make your way to your spot. We're going to be in verses 11 through 18 of chapter 6. You'll have an outline. We're going to continue this uh, from where we left off last Sunday. Let me go ahead and open us in prayer and just encourage you. We we don't do that robotically. We, we do it as, as this is the disposition of our heart. If we're going to glean anything from his word, be changed by it, be infused with hope and joy, all the things that the spirit desires to rot out of this time and in this time, we want him to have full reign. So we, we ask, full of faith, God, would you bless this morning? Okay, so loving the bow, Brooke, loving the bow. I promise I will not point out your beautiful daughter every Sunday morning. This is this week too, okay? All right, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this day. We, we look to you this morning with sincerity, with humility, uh, with eagerness and expectation that you would delight to open up your word to us, give us insight, give us understanding, probes the depths of our own heart and soul and mind. And Lord, you... Examine area, every area that needs to be sifted through, that needs to be changed and transformed into your likeness. We pray this now in Jesus' name, and we pray for your glory. Amen. All right. Uh, by way of reminder, Paul's usual closing words are, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Right? Those are the normal parting words. But it's at this part of the close of the letter is that Paul can't really help himself is what we get the impression with. He's, his love for the Galatians overwhelms him. The spirit of God carries him up with soaring emotions and, and soaring thoughts to the point where he gives this and adds this powerful appeal at the end of the letter, writing with really large letters as a way to stand on the table, shout from the top of his lungs, digs his finger into their chest, right into the place where their heart, where motives reside. And as they and as we begin to kind of squirm under the weight of God's sanctifying hand, Paul writes the following in verses 11 through 18. Go ahead and read with me now this morning. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cause cross of Christ. But those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that you, they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy, be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. <clears throat> if you're taking notes, main idea this week is the same one as last week. Spirit-led believers, very simple, live for the glory of God and not the praise of men. Spirit-led believers live for the glory of God and not the praise of men. You see, throughout this letter, the Spirit has been inspiring Paul to provide, really give a contrast between those who 
is, are the legalists and those who are spirit-led Christians. He had shown them the difference between those who live under law versus the believer that lives under grace, and those two ways of living are diametrically opposed to each other. It's not just a matter of different doctrine, and it is. It's two radically different ways of living. You can either choose bondage or you can choose liberty, right? Chapters 5, verses 1 through 12. You can either choose the flesh or you can choose the spirit, chapter 5, 13 through 26. You can either live for yourself or live serving others, chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. And now here in verses 11 through 18, he gives a fourth and final contrast. You can either live for the praise of men or live for the glory of God. Last Sunday, we covered verses 12 through 13, where we noticed that the legalist is very different from those who publicly declare their allegiance to Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And that is because the legalist lives for the praise of men and not the glory of God. Paul put in undeniable terms, he says, listen, the legalist, the person who does not get grace, is often, they're often braggarts, compromisers, persuaders, and hypocrites. They're people who boast in their own achievements. They're people who try to add works to the gospel. They adulterate the gospel of grace in order to avoid the shame of the cross. They convince others to do the same. And to make matters worse, they don't even practice what they preach. They don't even keep the laundry list of items and works that they try to add to the gospel of grace. And so Paul says in no uncertain terms, don't be like them. You are someone who has tasted the grace of God. You're someone who has been indwelt by God's spirit, so act like it. Well, thankfully for us, Paul's own example woven into the close of this letter is instructive for us to this end. And so we're going to frame this and word this in a way that stresses the action that's demanded for us as the people of God. You see, spirit-led believers gladly do three things. They gladly boast, they gladly rest, and they gladly suffer. We'll walk through this now this morning. First, spirit-led believers gladly boast in the reorienting power of the cross. They boast in the reorienting power of the cross. If you thought that the boast of the Judaizers was strange, right? The boast in the Jewish rite of circumcision in order to avoid the suffering for the cross of Christ, cause of Christ, Paul's boast sounds even stranger. He says, verse 14, but may it never be that I would boast, which was Paul's way of expressing the impossibility of boasting in anything else. It was inconceivable for him to boast in anything else, but in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That right there is really the anthem of the book, is it not? My only boast, my only boast is in the cross of Jesus Christ. I wanna pause there for a moment and for you and I to engage and I want you to ponder, think. What could it possibly mean to boast in the cross of Christ? And we don't typically commend boasting in any regards, let alone weapons of torture and execution, right? That's like me saying, I'm thrilled about the execution chair. Guillotines excite me, right? What does it mean to boast in the cross of Christ? What do we make from this powerful declaration 
from the lips of the Apostle Paul. I'm going to ask you now this morning, what does it mean to boast in the cross of Christ? Okay, I like like the enthusiasm, Jesse. Instead of us and our own achievement, the power of Christ within us and on our behalf. Excellent. What else? Anything else? I'm proud. Yeah, yeah. I'm unashamed to identify with with my Savior. Excellent. Anyone else add any? That's covering a great deal. Anything else? I don't want to cut us off. Galatians two twenty, right? I have been crucified with Christ, right? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Unapologetic. What does it mean to boast in the cross of Christ? It's all of these things, right? I think it's helpful to remember that boasting, really to put it in real simple terms, that's how I verbalize my confidence, right? Boasting is how we verbalize our confidence. It's how we make hope audible. Boasting is hope that you can hear. Now, no one can peer into your soul and see the source of your confidence or the object of your hope, but they can hear what you talk about, right? They can see what gets you excited. They can see what you commend to other people. They can see and observe what you celebrate. And so it's in that sense, all of us boast really all the time. We're always expressing our confidence in one thing or another. We can't help it. We're hardwired for hope. We're pre-programmed to verbalize this hope in various acts of boasting. When we think about it for any length of time, what are some of the things that we do boast in oftentimes other than the cross of Christ? Let me ask you. Wealth, possessions, excellent. What else? Achievements. Children, kids, excellent. Anything else? What's that? Pastors, okay. Well, there's a celebrity pastor, right? People kind of like lift up these individuals on a pedestal, fallen sinners in need of grace like everyone else. What was that? Intellect. Intellect. Absolutely. How astute are you? Athletes. Athletes. Athletic prowess. Two words never attached to me. Yes. Wes. No. Okay. Yeah, the list goes on, right? We, We often boast in objects that we think can make us happy. Perhaps we boast in other people, right? Like Steve said, we commend them as reliable sources of hope. And sometimes we boast in ourselves. We express confidence in our own future because of some sort of quality we possess, whether it be real or imagined. And it's against this backdrop that we're prepared to take a closer look at Paul's remarkable claim that he himself and Christians by implication ought to boast in only one thing, and that is in the cross of Jesus Christ. John Stott wrote this in his commentary regarding what it is to boast in the cross. It's to glory in, trust in, rejoice in, revel in, live for. The object of our boast or glory fills our horizons, engrosses our attention, and absorbs our time and energy. In a word, our glory or or boast is our obsession. Paul was a man obsessed, was he not? Obsessed with the cross of Christ. And his obsession with the cross was strange for 
a few reasons. Number one is he refused to live for anything, any of the things that people usually live for. He didn't boast about his popularity, his intellect, his influence, his appearance, his income, his job performance. He didn't even boast in his spiritual pedigree, a record, and that even includes circumcision. There's a, there's a section in Philippians that ought to come to mind at this juncture, right? We're going to read it next hour, Philippians 3. He says, listen, if there's anyone in the room that would have confidence in the flesh, I'm at the front of the line. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of, of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. And what does he say in chapter 3, Philippians verse 7? He says, against the backdrop of this quote-unquote glowing list, Paul emphatically declares the following, but whatever things were gained to me, what does he say? Anything I might have put a confidence in in the past, I account those things I've counted as loss, right? For the sake of Christ. Paul absolutely refused to take pride in any of his abilities, any of his accomplishments, which was strange because those are exactly the things that people often take pride in. Now, the reason it was strange, his obsession is in regards to what Paul was willing to boast about. You see, as Christians, we're used to thinking about the cross as something noble and even beautiful. But to ancient people, it was the ugliest thing imaginable. It was the ultimate form of humiliation. To Romans, they considered the cross degrading, despicable, disgusting, detestable, disgraceful. Which is why a fellow Roman citizen could not even be crucified and it was re reserved for the lowest, lowest of, the crim uh, of a criminals, the worst of the criminals. And so what a strange thing to boast about, no? The cross, if you think about it, should have been a source of an embarrassment to the early church. I mean, what would people think if the founder of our faith, of Christianity, were executed like a low-life criminal? What would people think? But for Christians and for Paul, he didn't deny this. He didn't cover it up. He advertised it. As should all Christians. The very thing that most people consider too obscene to whisper in polite company, Christians were broadcasting in the streets. And this type of verbalized hope was always Paul's MO in life, right? Right? Look at later, earlier in the letter, chapter 2, verse 19. Galatians 2, 19. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It was mentioned earlier. Chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as, portrayed as crucified. He kept right on boasting throughout the rest of his epistles. 1 Corinthians 1, 23. We preach Christ crucified. Later, chapter 2, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his only boast. That was his message. He was always speaking about the message, offense, triumph, and wonder of the cross. And God forbid for Paul that he should do anything else but boast in this cross. The cross meant the world to him, and it should to us as well. 
When you think about it, the cross is not just something to boast about. It's the only thing to boast about as well. The cross, as we approach Resurrection Sunday, just ponder for a moment. What does it mean to you? What does the cross mean to you as an individual? I'll let you tell me. You look at a cross, what does it mean? My sins are what? My sins are forgiven. Salvation. Love. Sacrifice. What? Future is secure. It has eternal implications. Cruel. Yeah, pain, suffering. What's that? Been set free. Yeah, right in line with the message of Galatians. It's interesting that one object can elicit all of that theological truth and implications, both for our past, sins forgiven, our present, of which we now rest securely at peace with God, but also a future that is also equally secure. For Paul, it was the only thing to boast about. We can boast about Christ crucified, just like Paul did, but we can only boast in the cross if we renounce anything else that we do put confidence in. If we renounce anything and everything we can do to save ourselves, if we humble ourselves. You see, there's only two options, really, to put it in real simple terms, and I am a champion for keeping things simple. I can either wade grubs glory in myself or I can glory in the cross. And to glory in the cross is to stop trusting in my own merits, right? My church attendance, my worship style, my devotional habits, my social involvement, my theological orthodoxy, although may we be orthodox, my number of converts that I've been used of the Lord to see come to Christ, To start trusting in the merits of Jesus Christ alone means we reject any and all human attempts to please God. When you think about the message of Galatians specifically, Galatians had to make a choice, right? A choice between the cross or a choice between circumcision. It was either one or the other. It could not be both. What is your boast going to be in? Circumcision was a way of them claiming a share in their own salvation. But the cross said in the words of the hymn that we love, right? Jesus paid it, what? All, all to him I owe, right? That is the message for those who are in Christ. His sacrifice is the all-sufficient ground of my salvation, It and it alone is sturdy enough to support the entire weight of my guilt and my shame. And so thus it is our only boast. We boast in the cross, but we said earlier that spirit-led believers gladly boast in what? The reorienting power of the cross. Let's keep reading verse 14. And you're thinking to yourself, we'll never make it to verse 18 at this pace. And it's true. We will make it, O ye of little faith. Uh, What do we mean by reorienting? Reorienting power of the cross. Let's read the rest of verse 14. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is. 
through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, the first reason I have for glorying in the cross is because it has completely reoriented my life. You see, the world in verse 14 represents all the godless values, all the hopeless pleasures of this present age. It's the present order of life that scripture is very clear about that's ruled right now by Satan and his agents. It's unredeemed humanity dominated by sin. That is this world that we're living in. And if there's one thing that both experience and scripture tells us is that the life of a person apart from Jesus Christ is the life of one who is enslaved to that system. It's a meaningless life ruled by the flesh. That's all they know. That's all they're capable of, which is to slavishly follow a system of evil promoted by the world and he who rules currently the world by his influence of corruption and deceit to steal, kill, and destroy being his chief ambition. And what is the result of this rule of the prince of the power of the air? In one way or another, every unbeliever, right? And you know this anecdotally from life in your past, but also those that you love that are still around you today. For every unbeliever, they are in bondage to the frustrations and futility of life. They're crippled with fear. Joy eludes them, evades them. Happiness, well-being, purpose, ashray, what the psalmist calls well-being in every facet of your life. They don't know it. They don't experience it. So they're constantly chasing it, and they're bewildered by the fact that they can't obtain it. They're in bondage to this world system. But Paul says, not me. Not me. Because of the cross... I am freed from this world's evil. I'm freed from this world's hopelessness. He knows that his past, present, and future sins are forgiven through the cross of Christ. He knows that his present life is in the Holy Spirit's care and strength. He knows his future is as secure in heaven as if he were already there. He knows this. And so he says, through the cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, we are dead to each other. Now that obviously doesn't mean that the world has no more influence on us, does it? It does still have influence on us. But what it does mean is that its dominion is broken. What it does mean that I'm no longer in bondage to it. The world and the flesh are still in the throes of dying and we still can be impacted by its corruption, we can. There's still an unredeemed flesh that we have till glory. But our relationship to the world and our relationship to the flesh is no longer the same because of the cross of Christ. It has been reoriented. As Christians, we no longer think in the ways that the world thinks. We no longer behave in the way that the world misbehaves. We no longer talk the way the world talks. We no longer take comforts in the comforts the world has to offer. We no longer value what the world values. Our lives as believers, because of the cross of Christ, has been radically reoriented. And since everything has been turned upside down because of the cross, that means we now live in a 
new world where Paul says here, verse 15, neither circumcision or uncircumcision count for anything. He says the only thing that counts is a new creation. Which leads us to the second thing that spirit-led believers gladly do. They rest in the recreating power of the cross. They rest in the recreating power of the cross. Verse 15. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Which is Paul's way of saying once we come to the cross for salvation... Circumcision becomes irrelevant. It has nothing to do with our salvation at all. And that's because if we're in Christ, circumcision can do nothing to improve our standing before God. And if we're not in Christ, circumcision can do nothing. Let me repeat that again. Can do nothing to save us. What does count, though, is a new creation. That inward transformation by which the Holy Spirit turns a sinner into a whole new person. Paul Paul later told the Corinthians, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation, new creature. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Later, Revelation 21.5, the Lamb of God is sitting on his throne. He's saying, behold, I am making all things new. Anyone who is born again by God's spirit gets a whole new life. You become a brand new creation. The theological term here for this inward transformation is what? What is that theological word for it? Regeneration, right? We're born again. We're made new. And as far as salvation is concerned, the only thing that matters is whether this recreative change has taken place. It matters not whether a person is a circumcised Jew or an uncircumcised Gentile. What matters is whether or not a person is a regenerated Christian. That's what matters. A new creature in Christ. And notice that we rest in the recreating power of the cross. Which tells us a great deal about the despairing depth to which humanity fell into sin. Right? Mankind, through Adam and Eve, didn't just fall on a curb and skin their knee. No, they spiraled into a world of fallen depravity. They were nailed in a God-sealed coffin labeled death. That was the reality. And it was such a fall, and this is where your theology is important, that what is now needed is not just a rehab job. What we need is not just a remodeling. We need to be recreated, right? The old life cannot be remodeled even by God because as Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, there's nothing good in the flesh on which to build. There's nothing there. A recreating work of God is demanded and required and that's exactly what he does for us. And so we rest in the power of the cross to do just that, to make us new. In verse 16, we get a greater sense of what it means to further rest in the recreating power of the cross. He says, and those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What is undeniably clear to us here is that there 
is a promised blessing for those who are new creatures in Christ, and it is the blessing of peace and mercy. Those are two blessings that every human being longs for, yearns for, peace and mercy. Peace refers to our now new and right relationship to the God of heaven and earth, the God who made you, holy God. Mercy refers to divine removal of our sins, and we are in dire need of both. Yes, peace and mercy. Where can these blessings be found? Where can they be found? Purchased, obtained, acquired, and bequeathed at the cross, right? Our only boast. Every unbeliever who's at war with God will find peace only only in the cross of Christ. There's a verse in Romans chapter 5 that should come to mind, right? Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God, right? Therefore, having been justified with God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that we have peace means that I'm in need of peace, which means I'm at enmity with God without this peace. I need a truce. I need a white flag to be waved. I need no longer for me to be at war with God and God at war with me. And the only thing that causes that to be the case is the cross standing between me and my God. Therefore, having been justified by grace, by faith, we have peace. That should mean everything to you this morning. The fact that God is not against you, but for you, is with you, in relationship with you, that you be reconciled unto him, restored back to the one who made you. Every unrighteous individual who's stained black by sin, and that is every unbeliever, is in need of being washed clean only by what we see in John chapter 1, verse 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? Hebrews 9, 26 says, Christ himself has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ is the only pathway for this mercy of sin removal. This is what Paul means when he says these blessings belong to those who walk by this rule. This blessing is... Conditional. A, a rule is a norm or a principle. And in this case, what, what Paul means by rule is salvation through the cross alone. That is the rule. That's the principle. Salvation through the cross alone. For Judaizers, circumcision was the norm. It was the principle. It was the standard for determining whether people were inside or outside the family of God. But circumcision means nothing to those who are part of a new creation. The Christian standard is what? It is the cross of Christ. The principle that determines whether you're inside or outside the people of God is faith in Christ crucified. And the power of his resurrection. It's accepting the the gospel of divine accomplishment through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That's our standard. And the fact that Paul prays for these gospel blessings to rest upon both Gentiles and the Israel of God means that there's no limits to the power of the cross. Aren't you grateful for that? There's no limits to the power of the cross. 
as we celebrate that this week and next and every week in between. 2 Corinthians 5.15, Christ died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Christ died for all. And that all includes, yes, Gentiles. Yes, thank you, Lord, that you died for Gentiles. But it also includes any and all Jews who believe in Jesus Christ. Those who are both the spiritual and physical descendants of Abraham and heirs of the promise rather than the law, right? Galatians 3, 7, we saw it earlier. They are the real Jews, the true Israel of faith that Paul refers to in Romans chapter 2, 28 through 29, and Romans 9, 7 through 6. 6 through 7, rather, getting it backwards. There's no limit to the cross's reach is the implication. And so Paul says, those who rest in the recreating power of the cross, peace and mercy belong to them. I was thinking last night, even looking back, just thinking just people in my life, both in the present, but also in the past, thinking of counseling situations and sitting in front of people who are wrestling with a a number of different things. And, and, and the question came to mind, and this is when I was pondering peace and mercy, I think I was struck with grief by how often peace and mercy evades the believer on an experiential level, knowing it, believing it, reveling in it, cherishing it. I, I would ask you this morning from kind of a, just a pastoral or just brother to brother, brother to sister, for you to think through, and let's talk about it this morning, what does it look like for peace and mercy to evade the believer? What does their life often look like when peace and mercy evade the believer? What's that? You get caught up in things going on around you, consumed with the here and now. What's that? Anxiety. Excellent. Striving, which is good, but when peace and mercy evade you, can often lead to weariness, disillusionment, hopelessness, frustration, confusion, fear. What's that? Resignation. Okay. Disconnection from the body. It often leads to isolation. Yeah. Hopelessness. Hopelessness. And. Yes, feelings of condemnation, shame, guilt. Right, the list goes on and on. I I wrote some of these same things. Shame, and I'm thinking of, of, I'm thinking of my own life. Right? I don't want to remove myself from this list. Shame, guilt, weariness, frustration, disillusionment, depression, paranoia, fear, anxiety. I mean, we could add list word after word. We, in those moments when those things dominate our life and we are not knowing peace and knowing mercy, right? Peace and mercy be upon them. And that is not true and resting on my life. I'm not resting in the recreating power of the cross. That is my life. I prove to be the unstable man of James chapter one. Have you ever been there? Unstable in mind and heart? 
moving back and forth, not sure where you're standing. It leads to a very frustrating existence. And, and I and encourage you, either that's been you in the past or if that's you right now, or perhaps you have a close friend that's there at this moment and you say, I don't know what to tell them. Encourage them to rest in the recreating power of the cross. Remind them of the gospel. Always bring us back to the gospel. Lord, bring me back to the gospel. Therefore, those who have been justified by faith have peace with God. What does that mean? There's people that come to my life right now, they are gripped with this this constant like feeling like they're not measuring up and they're assessing the standard and looking through the scriptures and doing really noble, honorable things, trying to be good Bereans and their life is so dominated by paranoia, fear and guilt. I'm not measuring up, I'm not cutting it. The message of Galatians denounces that. My only boast is where? It's in the cross. You know what that brings? Stability. Take a deep spiritual breath for a moment. I have peace with my God. I think as believers, we want so much for people to experience what the Psalms speak of as ashray. How blessed is the man, right? And the entire Psalter is opening up to you the way, the pathway to experience ashray, blessedness, well-being in every area of my life. Do you know that this morning? Do you know well-being in every area of your life? Is your day dominated and marked by that? How do you get there? My only boast is in the cross of Christ. That's how you get there, right? Let's move further on, verse 17 through 18. The believer not only boasts in the reorienting power of the cross, not only rests in the recreating power of the cross, but also suffers for the redeeming power of the cross. The apostle Paul was an unashamed boaster of the cross, and he had the battle scars to prove it. There was a time when Paul was proud of his mark of circumcision, right? Philippians 3, 4 through 6. But after he became a believer, he was a marked man in a very different way. He now gloried in the scars that he received and in the suffering he had endured in the service of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. This statement was partly a warning of Paul's old enemies, the Judaizers. You see, they had followed him all the way from Jerusalem to interfere with his gospel. His gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They wanted to disrupt that. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, right? Who's led you astray? And the apostle had finally had enough. And so he warns his opponents not to cause him any more trouble. He says, listen, if your religious celebrities have any scars to show for their glory of Christ, then let them be shown. Otherwise, stop bothering me. Leave me alone. Stop bothering me. But this is also a statement. This is a warning to every Christian, really. For it shows what kind of treatment we can expect for boasting in the cross. You see, sooner or later, every Christian who glories in the cross will face opposition. 
It may not be stoning. It may not be 39 lashings, but it will be opposition. We have a world that's growing increasingly hostile to God and his will and purposes. And not necessarily growing in hostility, but its manifested form is ratcheting up to a degree which is far more pronounced than perhaps I even realized a decade ago. The way of culture and society is the prince of the power of the air has his way. The secularization of human society, the suppressing of the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1, the exchanging the glory of God for a lie and worshiping the creature rather than the creator that's taking on more and more pronounced forms with each passing year. And so that as you boast in the cross of Christ, you look radically, radically different than the rest of the world. You will face opposition. Some will even bear on their bodies the brand marks of Jesus. We still have people on the, and we need to be dialed into this while we live in this bubble of North Lake, Texas, DFW. There are still people experiencing the brand marks of Jesus in physical form today. And what Paul meant by this is that he had various wounds that he had received for the cost of Christ. By this point in his ministry, the, the, the apostle had really taken a beating. You can just open up 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and you, you have no difficulty understanding his claim of this, right? For him, in many ways and in many places, he suffered physically for Christ. Just listen to it for a moment. Paul wrote, I was beaten without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received the, from the Jews 39 lashes, the same group he's writing against. Three times I was beaten with rods, three times I was shipwrecked, and once I was stoned. And where was he stoned? You go to Acts chapter 14, he was stoned in the city of Lystra, which was one of the major cities. Guess where? Galatia. Paul's suffering had clearly left their mark on him. As far as the Judaizers were concerned, their badge of true religion was the mark made by circumcision. But not Paul. Paul had a different insignia, one that came from glorying in the cross and not himself. His scars were a badge of his faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. This would have resonated with the church in that day for a number of different reasons. Number one, in Paul's day, it was not unusual for the follower of some heathen god or goddess to be branded by the mark of that idol. He or she was proud of her god. They wanted other people to know about it, so they would be literally branded with an insignia of the God that they worshipped. In the same way, Paul was branded for Jesus Christ, but it was not a temporary mark that could be removed, but a permanent mark that would, he would take all the way to the grave. Nor did he receive his brands in an easy way. He had to suffer repeatedly to become a marked man for Christ. And for him, this was a privilege, right? Like one of the things he frequently prayed for was that he would become so united with Christ, right? Philippians chapter three, is that he would come to share in his sufferings, right? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. This would have resonated with the church also as well because it was a practice in that day to brand slaves so that everyone would know who the owner was. Paul was a slave of Jesus Christ and gladly, gladly bore the marks to prove it. 
Then Paul comes to the end of the letter and he closes the same way that he began. Verse 18, he says, grace. (laughs) Grace. Ought to be a really heavy word when you read the end of the letter compared to when you began it. Grace. Not the law of Moses, but grace. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. And there really be no more that need to be said other than that. Grace. That says it all. My only boast is in the cross of Christ. My salvation, my life, my security, my past, my present, my future is bound up in grace, in grace alone, and not my own merit. I'll just give you three questions really to ask this week. This is more for reflection. I guess one, just to kind of turn it to us and say, well, what about me? What about you? I would ask, number one, have you verbalized your hope in Jesus Christ in such a way that others around you know that your only boast is in the cross of God's Son? To put this differently, what areas of your life does your boast in the cross need to be louder? Have you verbalized your hope in Jesus Christ to such a degree and in such a way that others around you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your only boast is in the cross of Christ? If not, think through areas of your life where your boast in the cross needs to be louder, more public. Secondly, as a new creature in Christ, do old creation priorities no longer matter to you? If you can say, no way, actually old creation priorities can still creep in and dominate my thought, my pursuits, bring that before the Lord. I should be consumed with new creation priorities. Set your mind on things above and not on things of this earth. Seek first his kingdom, right? As a new creature in Christ, do old creation priorities no longer matter to you? Third and finally, is your identification with Jesus and service of others so vibrant that it's become costly? Do you bear the marks of Jesus in your life? If we looked at our recent bank statements, would we see the marks of Christ? If a friend perused our calendar and the way that we prioritized our time, would we see the marks of Jesus serving others, blessing others, consumed with kingdom priorities? Or if someone talked to your friends and your neighbors, would they testify of seeing the suffering Savior on display in your life? Are you gladly inconvenienced by the needs of others? Or do you bemoan them and avoid them at all costs? Are you consumed with your own agenda and comforts and schedule? I think to ask, is my identification with Jesus and service to others so vibrant that it's become costly? The the Christian life is a sacrificial life. We gladly give ourselves for purposes that, that reside outside of myself and my own fame and renown. You see a struggling brother, you you go after him headlong with every gumption, with every fiber of your being. If you are in need of help, you avail yourself to the help and extension of others, their care and their mercy towards you. Your service of others should take a form that it does become costly. Your time, your energy, your resources. Why? 
in the spirit of Galatians 6, 1 through 10, because I am, I am saved by grace and indwelt by God's spirit, I gladly want to love my brethren and thus fulfill the law. I gladly want to bear one another's burdens, right? It should be sacrificial and costly. The life of our Lord was no safe, sanitized life, and we should not expect anything else. Give of yourselves, okay? Let me pray because we're coming up on time. Thank you for y'all's just attentiveness throughout the book. There's always more to say. We actually have the book of James. I want to encourage you the next two weeks because we're going to have two weeks. Just be reading the book of James. Spend time in chapter one or just the whole book. Just give it a read through every now and then uh, throughout your week apart from what you're already doing. Uh, Be familiarizing yourself with its words and message so that as we approach it, these things are already now kind of ruminating in our heart and mind, okay? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for our time. We thank you for the instruction, the profitability that is found in your word each week. Lord, you you unpack things for us. Hopefully we trust you. We have delighted to embrace its instruction and insight and conviction in our life. And we thank you for that work, that that work continues. You're going to continue. We pray full of faith that you would bring these things to mind, Lord, where we're ever tempted to lose sight of of perhaps our boast being in the cross of Christ and nothing else. Or perhaps we, we continue to listen to the voice of that legalist inside of us instead of championing grace and reveling in it and loving it, cherishing it, resting in it. Lord, we've become dominated by kind of performance-based religion. Lord, may, we, may you help us to be sensitive to that, aware of that. We want to we devote ourselves to pursuing you and honoring you and loving you, being conformed to your likeness and veiling ourselves to the instruments you use to that end. But Lord, never to the extent where we feel like we could earn your merit and your favor and right standing with you. We're so grateful that it's all of grace. And may that grace now motivate us to worship you with sincerity May it motivate us to want to flee and repent of sin and pursue righteousness. Why? Because you are worthy. We want our lives to to honor you, to be a reflection of your recreated power in us, your transformation, your spirit residing within us. We want to give an appropriate testimony of who you are and what you've done in our life. And we're all motivated by grace to this end so that you could be worshiped. We pray that now in advance for our time, be with our pastor, give him clarity and conviction of speech, keep him faithful to the text. And Lord, as us, may we sit on the edge of our seats, as it were, attentive to what you have for us in John chapter 18, this Palm Sunday. Lord, we look to you now. We look forward to the next hour full of joy and eagerness. Give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.